I told you I'd tell you when we got to movies that I haven't seen before. And here we are. While I've kind of seen Finding Nemo and I've kind of seen Cars, I didn't mention that during Cars, I'd, I'd seen Cars before with my niece along with Cars 2 and Cars 3, but I was more focused on her and taking care of her and making sure dinner was cooked and all that fun stuff, so those three films, the three Cars films, I've kind of seen, and like I said, I barely saw Finding Nemo. But this, Ratatouille, is a definitive never seen. No, no, no technicalese, no asterisks, brand new, walking into it. This is appropriate, since this was the first Disney Pixar one. From now on, it will be Disney period Pixar. Or Dot, or whatever you're actually supposed to call that. Disney asterisk Pixar? Eisner and Jobs didn't like each other. I've talked about that before. Eisner left the company, partially because of political pressure, partially because of some other reasons, partially because of a young up-and-comer named Iger, who is... <laughs> Well, he's a horrifically evil human being, to be as completely blunt as I possibly can. Um, not in the, like, the, 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 the puppy eating kind of way. No, this is, this is just an extremely cold fish. This is the kind of guy who would be a type three villain. Um, let me rewalk that. Is a type three villain in real life. Huh. He's, uh, he was more willing to negotiate. So that's cool. And this leads to an interesting little anecdote. You see, Iger was watching a parade, uh, in person or remotely, they're not sure which, in Hong Kong Disneyland when it was being launched. And during this parade, they were touting out a bunch of Disney characters. And Iger was like, none of those are Disney characters. I mean, we own them. But it's like, you know, seeing a parade with Darth Vader and Iron Man. Those aren't Disney characters. Those are Disney-owned properties. And he, according to Iger, that was a bit of a revelation. Now, how true this is, is up to you. But from what I know of the man, this actually does track. He then spent his very first board meeting ever as CEO, walking up and saying, we need to buy Pixar. We need Pixar under house, and that needs to be a Disney company. This was especially important since, remember, Pixar has been moving to get away from Disney for years at this point. And the only reason they hadn't was because they were stuck to this contract and because of Steve Jobs. In fact, it's actually entirely feasible that if Steve Jobs hadn't been the way that he was, also not a particularly good human being, by the way, then we might not have had, you know, Disney Pixar. And again, whether that's good or bad, well, that's up to you. Either way, Jobs was more than willing to work with Iger, so that's cool. Everything's cool. That's cool. And he's like, hmm... So how do we deal with this? Um, okay. Well, Iger presented the idea of how much of the profit of Pixar was not cycling directly back into Disney. And he was right. It's just it was cycling partially into Disney and partially into Pixar. So why don't we just solve that? Now, again, based on everything I've said over this whole series, you might wonder, why would Pixar ever sell on this? There's two big reasons why Pixar decided to go ahead and embrace this. Reason number one is Steve Jobs, who owned a stupid amount of Pixar and, as a direct consequence, also became a the majority shareholder of Disney. Probably a motivating factor. But there is one other reason, and this one hits a little bit close to home for me as a Star Wars geek. I'm sure a decent number of you watching this are familiar with Star Wars geekdom. If you're not, I'm going to give you a very brief version of this tale. 
because this is actually a very complex story. But when Lucas was finally thinking about walking away from Star Wars, handing the reins to someone else, he spent years looking for someone he felt he could trust with it. Because Star Wars was his baby, right? Oh, we can disparage George Lucas all day long, and there's plenty of reasons to do so. But at the end of the day, he's probably actually one of the more decent, you know, upper echelon, rich, creative, executive types that we've had over the last 40 years. And I stand by that statement. He just wanted someone who cared about Star Wars, because that was his. That was his baby. And he wanted someone to take care of it going forwards. He was convinced... How do I put this as nicely as possible? Um, under bad faith, he was convinced that Iger was the man to take care of that. And Iger himself, type 3 villain, was very good at schmoozing and charismaing and said all the right things at all the right time. Now, anybody familiar? Now, this is not to disparage Disney Star Wars. That's not what I'm interested in. I actually like quite a bit of Disney Star Wars. But... Almost immediately after the sale happened, almost immediately after Star Wars went under Disney and Iger took the reins from him, Iger immediately reneged on almost every single one of his promises to Lucas and decided to do his own thing because screw him. And then started just behaving in ways that showed that he thought of it as just another property and not something that he cared about. Now, you might think, well, of course, he's an executive, to which I once again point back to Lucas, who did actually care. Catmull and Lassiter, I hate to speak positively of Lassiter for obvious reasons, but Catmull is the big one here. They were in the same boat Lucas was. Jobs, <laughs> I can't believe this, Steve Jobs managed to convince them that Iger was going to... It, it's the same story, basically. You know, it's, it's okay. Iger will care. He'll take care of the company. Everything will be cool. We'll all be great. And he managed to convince the duo, and that was the second point of why they decided to sell out to Disney, even though none of them really wanted to do that, at least initially. Now, I don't know a lot about John Lasseter. I've mentioned his name a few times in relation to the creation of Pixar, and he has obvious relevance. What, uh, if I was to be unkind, I would theorize that Lasseter is more of an executive and less of a person. You know, like Rick Berman, to use another example of this kind of person. Someone who is not, is, is more concerned with the position, the office, the job, the money, the perks, and playing the game, and all that that entails, rather than being a human being and trying to be a decent human being. Given the fact that it was Jobs trying to convince him, I mean, why would you ever let Steve Jobs convince you of anything? Especially on this personal of a level. It makes me wonder if Lasseter wasn't already on board with this whole idea, despite his statements to the contrary. Now, I don't know about Catmull. He's kind of a rogue element here. But that's three major executive people, none of whom are particularly good people by all measures, and all three of whom are directly responsible for the beloved Pixar and all its wheelhouse being put under the, the law firm of Disney. Again, whether this is a good or a bad thing, that is debatable. And, I mean, we're still seeing the effects of this 13 years later, aren't we? Or however many years it is at this point. <sighs> so... <laughs> this movie was originally being done by Jan Pinkara, 
who was an animator and artist and was being given a, a chance to dig ahead and work on something kind of like everyone else had been previously. Now, I've heard differing reports on this one, but apparently Pinkara's team, I don't want to blame Pinkara themselves, but Pinkara's team wasn't working out great. And the, the movie was just kind of directionless, and they're like, okay, what are we doing with this? And so Brad Bird, who had just finished work on The Incredibles, was called in to take this film and to say, okay, here's the deal. We need you to completely overhaul this thing in about nine months, but you have to use the existing assets, so you need to kind of craft a new story from it. So we need a total script overhaul, and it's, it's just Toy Story 2. It's just Toy Story 2 all over again. Now, Toy Story 2 was a good film, but you notice how the very, very first Disney Pixar film goes right back to crunch. Did you catch that? Brad Bird actually walked away from filmmaking for a brief period of time after this because he was sufficiently burnt out that he just didn't want to deal with it anymore. Don't blame him. He did win an Oscar for this film, his second Oscar, by the way. Not that Oscars mean anything, but I'm just pointing it out because obviously a lot of people liked this film. I'd say I'm not sure why, but I don't want to give away too much. So, okay, fine. This is also when the brain trust was really in full swing. Now, I've mentioned it a few times, and I kind of stopped mentioning it because it became the norm. But by all accounts, Brad Bird... Uh, Brad... Yeah, that's right. That's the name, right? Oh, shoot. Now I can't remember. Oh, God, I hate it when I, I sort of forget a name, and I'm not sure I have the right name, and so i got to go check. Yeah, it is Brad Bird. Okay. Don't doubt yourself, Laura. Brad Bird uh, pulled in a bunch of people. In, into the office, basically. I was like, okay, let, let's talk this out. Let's let's figure this out. What's funny, though, Lasseter had a rule. Whether this is a good rule or not is up to you. But Lasseter insisted, and this was true at least as of the creation of this film, although from what I understand, it has since stopped being a thing. There was an, a hard dividing line between the different teams that were working on things in the same studio. And on one side of that line was the people who were formerly Pixar, now Disney Pixar. On the other side was the Disney Animation Studio, the, the group that would have, uh, that was doing Bolt, for example, and would en end up doing Zootopia uh, and Frozen. So these two teams were supposed to be completely segregate. So while they were having issues, they couldn't reach out to the Disney team for any assistance on this one, and vice versa. Again, whether that's a good idea or not, that's a lot more debatable. But either way, Bird brought in as many people as he could to be like, all right, how do we fix this? And brainstorm, 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 brainstorm. And we ended up with the film in question. Probably the single biggest change that is most relevant for the sake of this film is... Well, two biggest changes. Sorry, let me actually jump into that. One, the rats were turned into rats. Now you're not, I know what you're thinking. What? But hear me out. Does Mickey Mouse look like a mouse? No, of course he doesn't. He looks like a person that is slightly deformed. And that's kind of what they were going for. He insisted on a redesign of the rats, which also meant more research on how rats operated and moved. They pulled a Finding Nemo here, in short. They wanted the rats to animate and look like rats, just like they did in Finding Nemo, just like they did in Cars. And I do think that's a good approach, and I do think that was the right call. The other thing is Gusto was effectively deleted from the film. Now, they didn't actually get rid of the model, and they didn't get rid of the voice actor. They just made him dead. So Gusto isn't actually in the film, except in the commercials. He's only the imagination of Remy, and thus serves effectively as another voice for the Remy character. Cool. Then they relied on narration a lot. <laughs> I was going to comment about this later. I'm not a huge fan of narration. Narration can work. Don't mistake me. 
and I'm not automatically negative towards narration. But I don't think, unlike some other filmmaking tools which can have awesome stuff just by their very virtue of being that tool, I don't think narration would ever be an automatic positive either. And I feel like in this film it is almost completely unnecessary. There's a scene towards the end of the film, I'll jump right to a specific scene, where he starts narrating what's happening on the screen. It's 100% unnecessary. Now, I know, showing and telling, and that's exactly what this is. But when I say it's 100% unnecessary, they literally have a bit where he stands and he says, thank you for the meal. And he says, and then he said, thank you for the meal. It's just, you're literally narrating the events that are happening on screen. <laughs> Narration has to flow with the visuals, not on layered on top of it, like, like a crude bit of chocolate on a carrot. It doesn't work. <sighs> Sorry. This is a weirdly flawed film, and I think the crunch is, is is a decent chunk of why, but I digress. So they wanted the rats to look, uh, you know, less human. They got uh, Mike Giacchino, Michael Giacchino, back from The Incredibles to do the music. That was probably a very smart choice. He's a great composer. He does great stuff. And they got some really good and inspired cast going on, too. Then they decided to do their research. Now, this this amuses me. I will never disparage, is that even that word? I will never dismiss the kind of research that Pixar does for their films. They, they, they do their homework and it works. It, it helps the films in almost every case. But in this case, that meant vacationing in Paris and eating at high class restaurants for a few weeks. Come on. Now, I know, I know. It, it, speaking as someone who watches films I enjoy and plays games I enjoy for a living, I will tell you that while I do enjoy my job quite a bit, it's still a lot of work. I suppose I could be lying here. I don't have a way of proving that I'm not lying, but trust me when I say that it is still a lot of work. So again, they probably did still have to actually be like, okay, they did this and they did this and that works here. And uh, this is the atmosphere and this is the, the audio design of the room that it's in. There's a muted thing and this is how the front door is and this is how this... And they probably took a lot of notes because... Well, they do a good job with it in the film itself. They also do a good job with the kitchen. They do, they apparently did extensive research on how commercial kitchens work, both in the United States and in France, in order to try and get a feel and structure for how it should function and to fill out the various characters. Now, I want to add one other little tidbit here. Um, I mentioned that, you know, this, this was, uh, nominated for an Oscar, excuse me, won an Oscar for Best Animated Picture. But what's really strange here is multiple people in multiple interviews have all said the same thing, that this was the first Pixar film that was just designed for adults, not designed for kids. I want you to keep that in mind. So, we start off. Anton is gatekeeping, of course. And uh, we get to Remy, we get some establishment of Remy. We find out that he has a very good taste and sense of smell. Okay, that's cool. He is then turned into a factory worker as per his sense of smell. Okay, that's not quite as cool. I mean, could you imagine having to sit there and do your job that you like creatively in like a, a factory standard kind of a way, punching out episode after episode every single day? Can you imagine? Sorry. Uh, what I actually want to relate to here is rarity. Yes, I'm making a My Little Pony reference. Because there's an episode, I don't remember the name of it, where she makes this beautiful dress. And then like a bajillion people order. I think it's like a hundred orders or something. And so she just makes the same dress over and over and over. And she goes creatively stagnant. She hates it. Because of course she does. 
Now, I talked extensively about that concept in that video, and I will not repeat myself here. But you can see how Remy is in a similar location. And just, ah, oh, I just, I want to do one. I want to make, I want to be. They do these visuals of the flavors. Now, there's actually two things they do throughout the course of this film. This is the most obvious thing with the literal and the as, as the music plays. But, and they do this later with his brother as well. But they, in almost every scene where there's food that's being consumed, they bother to have some very quiet and, in many cases, almost imperceptible audio cues, and in some cases, visual cues in the background, to try and emphasize the nature of flavor. And this is brilliant, if I might be so bold. I'll admit I'm actually something of a food geek. Not not like that. I mean, cooking is actually a better way to put a cooking geek. That probably showed when I was doing the Lord d'oeuvres series, which unfortunately I had to cancel thanks to time commitments. It takes forever to do those episodes. But, um, which is funny. It's like a five-minute thing, and it would take me like two hours out of my life. Anyways, but, you know, cooking is amazing. I, I cannot gush enough about cooking. And I love how they encapsulate that enthusiasm. That is something they're good at at Pixar. Continually, uh, Coco is probably one of the most recent examples of something I can think of, where they just manage to capture that essence of someone who really is a geek, an enthusiast, someone who is really into something to such an extent that they just, oh, they love it and they gush about it and they, ah, this is incredible, right? And that kind of enthusiasm is infectious, at least to me. And so we see this as Remy talks about it. It's funny because cooking is something that itself could be considered one of the cultural keystones. One of the keystones of civilization as a concept. We could argue that back and forth, but I would make that argument very strongly, I might add. There's so much that goes into cooking. It's not just about turning food into slightly more nutritious food. It's not even about turning food into more delicious food. There's so much history and and chemistry and art and design and passion and love and care and industry and 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 processing and resources and experimentation and design that goes into cooking i sorry i'm i'm going off topic here a little bit but the film does capture that that vibe right there remy is clearly a chef someone who just loves cooking and I really like how well they nail that. So we see Gustav. We see the old lady. Oh, actually, real quick. One thing, quick thing about Remy, which I do like. I'm going to quote myself here. Good food is best shared. Now, I actually made up that quote when I was younger, and I thought I was so clever for it. But it's still true, and so I still say it. Good food is best, comma, when it's shared, and good food should be shared. It's, it's saying two things at the same time. Remy clearly believes in the exact same concept. In almost every circumstance, when he gets something food-wise, he wants to share it with someone, usually his brother. But he wants other people to engage and experience that. And that's, again, why I call him a chef. Real cooks... Ah, that sounds egotistical, or elitist, excuse me. I'm going to say it anyways, because I believe it. I'm not going to lie about it. Real cooks want to share the food they cook. They want other people to experience it. They want other people to enjoy it. They want other people to love it. Whether it's just just you cooking for your family or for yourself, or maybe you've got the guys coming over and so you made a nice dish, or maybe it's, it's your mother and she's cooking for you, or you're cooking for your kids, or whatever, right? 
real cooks want that food to get out there, want other people to eat it, and just, oomph. So Remy embodies both of these things, and it's easily the best part of the film. This then leads to the old lady who has a gun (laughs) for dealing with rats. I'm not sure that was the best operational strategy, but, you know, whatever, whatever. I do want to mention one thing very quickly. There's a brief bit where he is yelling at his brother. And then it cuts to the woman, and we see Remy, who's going, squeak, 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 squeak. This is important. This is something that most animation just skips right over. Most animation just cheats when it comes to animated creatures or animated toys talking with each other. And it just assumes that they do, and no one else can understand them. Sometimes it assumes they can't understand them, so, you know, whatever. But for the most part, most fiction just cheats. Here we see that they are communicating just in a way that the humans can't understand. Okay. They also pull the usual trick that animals can understand each other and can understand humans, but humans can't understand animals, which is a very common trick in fiction. The aforementioned MLP pulls the exact same trick all the time. So, nice little establishment there. They had boats prepped, ready to go, of course. And, uh, what, hold. what does that say? Oh, right, that was the Academy Award thing. Duh. <laughs> this, well... This leads to how easy it is to sympathize with Remy as a character. He just wants to be more than he is. He wants to do better. And this is actually related to the central theme, which I will discuss in just a bit. For once, I think the central theme is actually the one that's on display rather than a hidden one. But again, we'll get there in a minute. So Gusto, the ghost, excuse me, the projection, the imagination... They say this flat out later in the film. I actually wrote a note theorizing this point right here at the very beginning. So, yay me for actually being able to analyze fiction properly. This is him expressing himself without fear, is how I put it. Later on, he states this as, why are you the only person I can be honest with? Why do I need you to tell me what I already know? Why do I have to hide what I am from everyone else around me? This goes again into that whole understandability and relatability thing. I'll, t- I'll cover that more later. I, I want to re- recycle back to that point. But it's just, that is himself being himself, effectively. So he scurries through France a little bit. Then there's a sh- gunshot, and then a kiss. I was going to make a joke here, but is that just a French thing? I-, I have no idea. I have never been to France, to my dismay. I'd actually love to visit sometime, and... Uh-huh. Is that a French thing? I'm guessing it's not, because if you see something, for example, in the United States of America in fiction, 99.9% of the time, that's not a thing here. So, I'm guessing this is just an exaggeration for a gag. Then Skinner shows up and is immediately the villain. I know I've commented on how several of these films don't really have central antagonists, um... I think we're kind of officially out of that phase now, and we're at the point where we are right back to having central antagonists. Again, no judgment. There's nothing wrong with that. But Skinner sucks as a villain, which is a shame, because Ian Holmes is amazing. But he is not an engaging villain. He is uh, pathetic, but not in a way that works, and he's constantly self-sabotaging for no stated reason. He's petty and small-minded and pathetic, and I just... I, he's He gets very close to being a get-off-my-screen character. 
I'll come back to that in a bit. At least I, I will hope I remember it because I didn't write it in my notes. But I just had a thought, and I want to remember that thought for later. Here, I'll, I'll do this. Usually this helps remind me. So Remy, <laughs> even Remy makes fun of Linguini and freaks out. Oh, my God, he's ruining the soup, chef. Oh, yeah, Linguini is voiced by Lou Romano who is not a professional voice actor and yet nevertheless manages to nail the role perfectly, which once again gets across the point of what this needs to be. We have our third or so action sequence in about 22 minutes. I have relatively few notes on this film because there's a lot of extensive sequences where it's just action shenanigans, action shenanigans, and a lot of slapstick. And I found myself once again wondering, this is for adults? I mean, Three Stooges is, is brilliant in its own way. Really, but... Eh? So he can't stop himself from fixing the soup by adding to it, by the way. That's funny in its own right. I mean, I'm, I'm not even going to dissect that. It actually doesn't make sense, because what should happen is he should throw out the soup entirely and start a new vat, and that would actually make sense, because later he replicates the recipe, which is the crap that uh, Linguini did, with his fixing on top of it. So he'd have to make the crap and then fix it every single time and whatever. There are lots of fun visuals here. I'm not going to mention them all, but there are a ton of them. But this is probably the most cartoony Pixar film I've seen so far. There's a lot of just very Looney Tunes. Again, not as an insult. Usually when I say something is Looney Tunes, I do mean that as an insult, and I'll admit that. But that's usually because it doesn't fit. That's the problem, is you, you pull the Looney Tunes thing and you just drag it in, assuming it'll be good. That doesn't work. Here, they use that as part of, well, Linguini's character. It is effectively his main character trait. We'll get more into that a little bit as well. So, rats can understand English. Cool. It's actually funny to me because there's a huge numbers of way to communicate without ever using a single word of dialogue. So it makes sense to me that, you know, Remy and uh, Linguini would be able to communicate. In fact, I kind of wish they would communicate a little bit more, but whatever. Then, so he brings Remy back to his small apartment in Paris. Now, I wrote a random note. That place probably costs double what my place does, and I have a larger apartment. Then I, uh, while I was admittedly having nothing to write down during a particular action sequence would happen right after this, I was like, you know what, I'm going to look it up. And it turns out that it's not that bad. It's only about one to three thousand euros a month for a tiny little bedroom like he had. Real estate. So the physical, like I said, the physical comedy does work better. The hair is the controls. You know what, Okay. This is the concept. Again, every Pixar film, going all the way back to Toy Story 1, is a concept film. And you just kind of have to accept it at a certain point. And in this universe, apparently you can control someone's entire body, even when they are asleep, by yanking on their hair. Sure. <laughs> they spend some time establishing it. They do the blindfolded cooking thing. Cool, to perfect the system. That makes sense. They do cutting later. That makes sense. Skinner continues to be needlessly antagonistic. Now, let me explain part of why this bothers me so much. It's because he's the bad guy. No motive, no, 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 you know, depth, no explanation, no nuance, no charisma. He shows up to be like, <laughs> and then wanders off, practically twirling his mustache. Now, to contrast this, Colette is almost as antagonistic, if not more antagonistic, than... Uh, what was his name? Skinner. Then Skinner is. 
And yet, that fits perfectly in with her character. She is not needlessly antagonistic. She is pushing back against something that she considers to be a bad situation. And she is doing so while still legitimately helping him. She does give him actual lessons, which, by the way, a lot of the stuff she shares are real life applicable lessons when it comes to that kind of environment. Um, now, I only checked one source on this, and it was a relative of mine, so that I don't know how valid that is in all commercial kitchens, but they confirmed pretty much everything I jotted down for this one. So, again, research on display. Feel free to contradict if you have better experience with this, because, again, I only had one person to contact. So, she explains herself, and she does this whole thing. It makes so much more sense. And, of course, she is a woman in the chefs, and which is very... Uh, misogynistic, so she has she has to push even harder than usual in order to make it work. This also explains why she's so antagonistic, because she would be to anyone new, because she has to fight for her position, right? Remember that point for later, by the way. Unlike this point, I will remember that point, hopefully. Now, I wrote something down randomly here. This is funny. Skinner is selling the name as cheap frozen crap. I, the na- the, I wrote down in parentheses, Chef Boyardee. Later on, right about here, uh, Ego actually flat out compares this whole situation to Chef Boyardee. Wow. <laughs> For those of you not aware, Chef Boyardee is based on a real chef who was a very good chef, who was then resigned to be a face on a label of cheap and frankly kind of crap food. Sound familiar? Anyways. So after all this... At this point, we're relatively well into the film. We're about halfway in at this point. He finds the letter. He actually reads the letter and finds out that that is Gusto's son and is the rightful owner of this restaurant, which he needs in order to keep doing his frozen crap. And now, for the first time, he actually has a motivation to be so antagonistic towards our main protagonists instead of just being a dick for no reason. Cute. Anywho... Uh, this is where I mentioned that she gives really legitimately good uh, help and advice. This is also where she kind of runs down all the other people who work here. One of them ran away from home at 12. One of them was a foreign prisoner. One of them's a former gambler cheater. One of them used to be a gun runner. And we kind of see why they tolerate him. This also leads to a bit where he says thank you, and she says thank you back. Now, I want you to remember that point, because I know I'm saying this a lot, this, this rumination, but my point here is that she is legitimately thankful because he actually values and respects her. And he demonstrates that. He is listening, he is paying attention, and he does value her advice. In short, he is treating her like a chef, not a girl. Now, this then leads to uh, the the, the bread. (laughs) The... Apparently, the developers of Final Fantasy XIV had watched this movie. I don't actually know if that's true. But tell me, this doesn't sound a lot like Archon Loaf. Some of you some of you know what I'm talking about. Does anybody? Anybody? Seriously, it sounds a lot like that. And ooh, it just sounds absolutely terrible. This is also when Lou Romano really helps to sell his scenes. And everything's cool and everything's awesome. This then leads to... Uh, a bunch of scenes kind of rapid fire through here really quickly, but this is this is when we get to kind of really start to focus on the themes of the work. I mean, he gets he gets uh, Ling- Linguini 
I keep stuttering over his name. He gets him very drunk on wine. Makes sense. He has no alcohol tolerance. And gets him to spill absolutely nothing. Ratatouille. Roll credits. And this, a drink to non-idiocy. I wish. But no. Uh, Remy then starts to steal for the browner. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Uh, there's a nice scaven line there. We don't leave the nest. We make it bigger. And this is when the controls also work when they're asleep. And there's this kind of aggravating problem where this is aimed at adults and lessons and ideas about connections between people. We could be more. One of the biggest themes that this film hits over, it's actually probably two themes that just kind of have to dovetail nicely, is taking from reality rather than adding back into it. And the film gives a direct comparison of this idea. A rat can go and steal some food, or a rat can go and cook some food. There you go. Straight one-to-one example. I myself have talked about this on a national level before, historically, as well as in fiction. Uh, I usually speak against what I call marauding forces. A marauding force, like you know, the, the, the Mongols is probably one of the most famous real-life examples, but there's a lot of raider-type groups in fiction as well, where they don't contribute anything. They don't add new ideas or concepts or anything to society. They just take from it. And so I'm kind of with this overall theme. And this is also kind of how Remy himself is pushing. He wants to add. He wants to put out into the world. In his case, he wants to cook as his method of doing so. If you notice, Linguini kind of wants to as well. It's just more understated because his main problem is he doesn't... Well, he has no idea how to be whoever he wants to be because he's constantly being pressured to be people that he's not because of lack of lack of backbone, but also because of lack of circumstance. He's just, you get the impression, especially considering how much he talks about his former jobs, that he's just stumbled from one thing to another. In fact, in the entire first three-fourths of the movie, he demonstrates only being good at one thing. Skating. <laughs> one of the weirdest bits of foreshadowing I've ever seen, but there it is. He then freaks out a little bit, and, well, he's asleep, of course, because because we got to have our comical misunderstandings. I thought this was for adults. And she freaks out, and so finally he's like, okay, fine, I'm just going to tell you the truth. And Remy stops him, because we can't possibly have open and legitimate communication in a Pixar film. That would be Monster Zinc at that point. Instead, the, the, he stumbles into the kiss, and she, she grabs her pepper spray. This scene irritates me unabashedly, and I hate how forced and awkward it is. However, in direct contrast to Cars, I want to point out that this is a lot less of your typical Hollywood romance than the one was back in Cars. At least in this film, both of the main protagonists who fall in love with each other have reasons to do so, have legitimate connections. Both of them are outcasts. Both of them have expectations placed upon them that they are not in favor of. Both of them have constantly strived to do something with their lives. Both of them f respect and care about each other. Remember I mentioned that re the, the whole respect thing and listening thing earlier. Now, whether that's going to form a long-lasting relationship, who knows. But at the very least, there is some kind of foundation there to build that road upon. So I will give you that, Ratatouille. Uh, anyways... This then leads to our first real showcasing of Ego, who kind of becomes the new main antagonist, because he shows up, 
and he's like, uh, he's, he's tall, everything, the wonderful visuals. He's got the skeleton typewriter. His whole area looks like this big gaunt, almost vampire looking place. He himself looks rather thin and gaunt and like, like he's uh, getting a little bit skeletal. Keep that in mind too, by the way. We're up to like five things at this point. Although we've already paid off one of them. And, um, Skinner, meanwhile, is freaking losing it and just being an idiot at this point. Uh, I, I, his plans are terrible. There's a lot of narration here, which doesn't need to be here. And this, this is interesting. So Remy reveals the truth about the situation to Linguini, that he is his son, that he inherited his, his estate, blah, blah, blah. So Linguini then immediately pays Remy back. I, I hope you paid attention to that. Make sure he has his own bed, his own nice food, make sure he's taken care of. And the two have this nice thing going on. You'll also notice that the villain, Skinner, effectively leaves the film at this point. Not entirely, but very close to permanently leaving the film. Funnily enough, he really did get off my screen. And I swear this is kind of a coincidence, but also partially not. This is when the film started actually being good for me. Oh, there's been good moments up till now. But in a similar way to Cars, the final act is substantially better constructed than the rest of it. Remy, uh, Remy is getting upset. Why? Well, because of the other theme that I hinted at earlier. Identity. Once again, I find myself asking the same question. This has already come up in the Pixar block. I imagine several of you out there, and you don't have to say anything in comments, understand what it's like to be something and not be able to be that thing openly. You know, maybe it's it's your gender, or maybe it's because of what you like or think uh, politically or in terms of which Star Wars film you like. It could be something simple. It doesn't matter. You have to hide that because of how judgmental our society and our people tend to be in general. And so you just kind of clamp down on that. I know exactly what that feels like. Do you know how many years I had to spend as a social pariah for the fact that I liked Star Trek? I can talk about it so openly now. But I spent years under that under that weight. How about video games? Huh? Nerd. Or D&D. Or writing. Or engineering. Or math. Or any of the other things that I always got into. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a massive geek about everything. You know that. You know, I've actually... I, <laughs> I've, I've had some people jump down my throat in the past for the simple idea that people shouldn't jump down people's throats over things like that. You know, let's not be severe horde versus alliance kind of a thing, you know? So, Remy wanting to be himself is, again, the other big theme of the film, and it ties so neatly into adding to the world, because these people want to add to the world. They want to produce something, contribute something, right? Just like uh, Linguini does. I, I keep thinking I'm screwing up his name. Double check my notes here. No, it is Linguini. Alfredo Linguini. That's his name. Who names our kid that? Um, just like Linguini just wants to be himself. He's actually a pretty good waiter. At the end, he gets on the skates. Nice little touch there. What about Colette? Or, or was it Cosette? Oh, God, I'm screwing up all the names. No, it's Colette. I'm right. Stop doubting yourself, Laura. 
She just wants to be herself. She doesn't want to have to constantly fight and scrap and scrail for every little inch of ground that she has. She just wants to be a freaking chef. She's a good chef, too. In fact, if you pay attention, she's probably the second best chef we see in the film. And that's only behind Remy himself. And I don't just mean in terms of cooking prowess. I mean in how she organizes and takes care of the kitchen. There's this bit where Linguini has to go up and give a speech. And it's terrible and meandering and awful. And then she takes charge and says, let's go and let's do things. Now, you already see the pair up and how the two could actually work pretty well together there. But you'll also notice how she is, probably unintentionally, pushing him to be someone he's not. A head chef. And you see how that ties in beautifully at that point. And these themes work so well in this final act. Both of these themes just dovetail over each other beautifully with almost every main character. I mean, what exactly is Skinner adding to the world by stamping bad frozen food with some other guy's name that he stole... I mean, you, you get it, right? Huh. Now, this is the brilliant part, and this is why I really like this. So Anton shows up. He's very gaunt, of course. They even comment on it. He has this line. I don't like food. I love it. And if I don't love it, I don't swallow it. Now, it's said as kind of a villainous sort of a thing, but if you pay attention, that says a lot about the character, doesn't it? It's probably our earliest bit of foreshadowing that the man is more than he appears and is actually one of my favorite characters in this work. I'd probably put Colette at the first and then him and then Linguini and then Remy if I had to number them. So the third act, we have the third act argument between Remy and Linguini. Credit to Linguini. I was surprised by this. Remy, of course, is like, ah, and Linguini's like, rah, and then Linguini comes back and is like, look, I'm sorry, I'm under a lot of pressure, and I didn't mean to do this. You're a good friend, and I owe you tremendously. And he does something interesting. He is open, he is honest, and what comes across is legit, sincere, and effective. And if it wasn't for his stupid rat brother ruining everything, it might have actually worked. Instead, he gets legitimately pissed at the whole situation, understandably so, and that goes to hell. But you you caught that, right? Linguini being himself, just being his own open, honest self, led to good things happening, or at least almost did. Now, I want to give Linguini credit. The problem is, he's it's so aggravating how often he lies, because he's so bad at it. Trust me, speaking as a professionally bad liar. I don't know how you could be a professionally bad liar. So I guess I just lied right there, too. <laughs> Someone who is not good at lying. It's it's easy to detect in someone else. And oh my god. So Ego orders his meal. What does he want? Perspective. Ha ha ha. Remy, this is when Remy flat out states out the second major theme of the work, when he's talking to himself. Why do I need to why do I need to tell you? Why do I you be the one to need to tell me? It's why do I need to pretend? That identity point, ooh, that's good. It's a great character moment. And unlike some other character moments which don't work quite as well, that's brilliant. It's probably, I'd say, the best scene in the whole film. Maybe second best, because we haven't gotten to the Pixar Tears scene yet. You probably know which one I'm going to mention. Although I am, as ever, and with all of these rooms, I'm curious which Pixar te- which, which moment is the Pixar Tears moment for you in each of these. So, he stops, 
Linguini stops. Linguini prevents them from going. He gives a much better speech. A way better speech. Which actually pisses me off because the rest of the, the cooks all just bail on him as a result of that. Piss ants. But he does give a much more heartfelt, legit speech that probably should have convinced at least one of them. This also leads to Colette. I asked you to remember that? Remember? Well, she goes off and she sees the book and she realizes that she really is in the same kind of boat as both Remy and Linguini. She knows what it's like to be that kind of an outsider. Someone who has to fight and scrimp and scrave for every inch she gets. And she just can't bring herself to abandon that. So, good on her for that. She turns around. She's the only one who comes back to help. And then we get to uh, him being the waiter. He's good on the skates, as I mentioned earlier. And what? You want to serve him a peasant dish? This... Ooh, this is this is the scene. This is the Pixar tier scene right there. They serve him a peasant's dish. Very appropriate, actually. Remy himself is functionally a peasant. So is Linguini. So is Colette. And peasant food can be well, its own thing. And there, I, honestly, I could just go off on a whole tangent for this for like twenty minutes. Let's not. But peasant food has its own connotations. But one of the big things about it is there's a simplicity to it. I bet you money that uh, that uh, Ego was expecting a big, flashy, fancy d dish. Because he's the big dude. He is the major uh, food critic in the city, right? And he is incredibly egotistical and incredibly gatekeeping. And probably just looks down on all of those dishes like, uh-huh. And instead he was given a take on Ratatouille. A relatively... I, I could go cook that in 20 minutes if I had the zucchini, which I don't. It, it's a relatively simple dish. But it was made very precisely and very properly. And when he feels... When he takes it and just feels... You, you kind of feel it with him, too. And this ties back to my earlier point. This is why this is the Pixar Tears moment for me. Because of what food... What cooking is. You remember me just gushing earlier? I was actually supposed to gush here in my notes. I even have a note for it right there. Gush about food. I kind of forgot to and I just sort of started gushing earlier. But I just want to draw your attention back to when I did that earlier. Because this is that moment that exemplifies that. That something as simple as sharing a cooked meal could evoke such feelings and emotions and concepts within such a otherwise embittered soul. And you know how we know with total certainty that it hits him? It's not the visual into his memory. We can't all be mommy, after all, as far as in the kitchen. You can't cook like mommy can, but they did. Anyways, it's not just that. It's the fact that he demands, insists on talking to the chef. He has to talk to the chef. And Linguini, honesty, it's not me. And he's like, no, I'm going to talk to the chef. And he willingly sits and waits until the whole restaurant's closed so they can come out. And so he can talk and he can see Remy. And this is when the unnecessary narration shows up. But otherwise, it's a great scene. He just goes, asks the occasional question, watches as Remy presents and demonstrates. Thank you for the meal. And then he leaves. He has a great speech. I wish I'd written it all down, but it would take a while. It's something about how we reviewers tend to have an easy job when you think about it, because all we do is take and not give. 
This is one of the reasons why I try very hard to give in my job to actually add to the substance of the universe rather than simply taking away from it. I have no idea if I succeed. I mean, this isn't a review. This is a rumination, but I do a lot of reviews. That is my primary job over on Twitch. So I hopefully succeed at that kind of stuff. Who knows? So, um, yeah, uh, the, the film wraps up. You know, they had to let go of the people. The, the restaurant gets shut down. Ego personally funds a new restaurant just to help share the love of food, adding, you know, once again, adding to the universe to try and share this, this wonder, this great chef with others. Yeah. And, uh, one last tiny little tidbit. You notice he's looking a lot less gaunt there, too. I'll give you that one, film. I forgot what this one was, sorry. I probably addressed it somewhere along the lines, but this was a another one of those bipolar films for me. I end on a high note, just like with Cars. The first part was just kind of, okay. A little bit too much physical comedy, a little bit too much action sequence, a little bit too little substance. But proper foreshadowing for once, which then led to a legitimately good final act. So I will give you a surprisingly good film for the first Disney Pixar work. We'll see how well this continues next time. <laughs>